Good morning. We have uh, two readings today. The first one is from 2 Kings, um, chapter 16, verses 10 to 20. Then King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tilgar-Pilsar, king of Assyria. He saw an altar in Damascus and sent to Uriah the priest a sketch of the altar with detailed plans for its construction. So Uriah the priest built an altar in accordance with all the plans that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus and finished it before King Ahaz returned. When the king came back from Damascus and saw the altar, he approached it and presented offerings on it. He offered up his burnt offering and grain offering, poured out his drink offering and splashed the blood of his fellowship offerings against the altar. The bronze altar that stood before the Lord he brought from the front of the temple, from between the new altar and the temple of the Lord, and put it on the north side of the new altar. King Ahaz then gave these orders to Uriah the priest. On the large new altar, offer the morning burnt offering and the evening grain offering, the king's burnt offering and his grain offering, and the burnt offering of all the people of the land, and their grain offering, and their drink offering. Splash against this altar the blood of all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. But I will use the bronze altar for seeking guidance. And Uriah the priest did just as the king Ahaz, Ahaz had ordered. King Ahaz cut off the side panels and removed the basins from the movable stands. He removed the sea from the bronze bulls that supported it, and set it on the, a stone base. He took away the Sabbath canopy that had been built at the temple and removed the royal entrance outside the temple of the Lord in deference to the king of Assyria. As for the other events of the reign of Ahaz and what he did, are they not written in the book of the annals of the king of Judah? Ahaz rested with his ancestors and was buried with them in the city of David and Hezekiah, his son, succeeded him as king. Okay, our second reading is from 2 Thessalonians, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 17. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy, or by word of mouth, or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things, and now you know what is holding him back, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power 
through signs and wonders that serve the lie, and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie, and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel, that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. Thanks, Michelle. Now, there's a story that most of us heard as children and probably if you're like most normal kids and not like me, uh, the story just was the story you had a little chuckle about and grew in a moral from. The story is the story of the hare and the tortoise. And you chuckled and went away and said, slow and steady wins the race and on you went. Well, that wasn't my experience. And for the life of me, I'm thinking, Mr. Hare, how could you? It was in the bag. How did you mess it up? Let me say, just by the by, slow and steady doesn't win the race. Nobody is ever coming second and thinks, I'm just going to slow down and steady up and I've got this one. It doesn't work like that. But it was trauma for me because I was thinking, oh, mate, this was in the bag. How did you, what I call, how'd you hair it up like that? And the lesson I went away is when you're winning, don't hair it up. When it's in the bag, don't hair it up. My message this morning is, when it's in the bag, don't hair it up. Or to put it in language that might make more sense, as you'll see on the next slide, here's the big idea. Stand firm, keep on track. Stand firm and keep on track. It's in the bag. Our hope is found in Jesus. So stand firm and keep on track. Don't hair it up, whatever you do. We're in a series called Finding Hope, and we've been talking about this great hope that Jesus brings us at the end of times. And we started in Colossians 1, as you'll see on the screen. Colossians 1 helped us understand so much more about the wonderful faith we have. We believe in a God called Jesus, and he is the Jesus who rescues us, rescued me, and rescues you from hell for heaven. And you go, what more could there be? That's amazing. Well, so much more. Because Colossians 1 tells us that not only was God pleased for his fullness to dwell in him, but that what God was doing, it was through Jesus, he was reconciling all things to himself. He was bringing together all the things he wanted together. Not just me, but realms. Jesus is this Lord over all all things that we see and that we don't see and God's bringing them together in him. Jesus is doing a great big job and God's doing a great big job through his son, the Lord Jesus. 
And so we've been trying to wrap our heads around this whole idea with my Jesus map, which I hope has helped you. And um, the QR code is not part of the map. That's just a regular feature. If you have any questions, you can use that to send them in. We'll try and deal with them on week five of this series. But what we've seen through the work of Jesus is we start with a creation that acknowledges that there's a heavenly realm where God dwells, and it's spiritual, and it's timeless, it's eternal. And there's an earthly, fleshly realm, that's where we are, and these are not the same place. And we heard the words of Job, where he just marveled at God, you're just much bigger than me. What we've been exploring is the work of Jesus, who God was reconciling all things to himself through. And so we see every time Jesus stands on the dust of the earth, things get better. At his incarnation, that's Christmas, Jesus comes and he brings divinity to earth. Amazing. Realms together in a way that if you are Islamic, you tap out at this point and go, no, God doesn't become a man. That can't happen. Already our God has exceeded the expectations of world religion. Our God does more than that. He takes on the enemy that no one else has ever defeated, death. This is where Jesus dies on the cross and he overcomes death by his resurrection. But more than that, we know there is a, a realm of death and a realm of evil and a demonic realm. And Jesus, by his death and resurrection, says, there is no enemy that can stand before me. Not only has he bridged the gap, he's overcome the barrier in what he has done by his death and resurrection. And in his ascension, this is where Jesus takes human flesh back into the heavenly realm. Jesus in himself has done exactly what, what Colossians 1 says. He is reconciling all things to God, where he's brought heaven down to earth and he's taken earthly up to heaven and he's held them together. And it's amazing what Jesus has done at a cosmic level. What does that mean for us? Well, it means that by faith in Jesus and by the work of God and his Holy Spirit, he binds us to himself. We baptized Christian this morning as a sign of this very column that Jesus has placed his spirit in us and we are in Christ and we're united in a way that even death can't break. When we die, we simply take off the flesh, but we remain alive to the Lord. And our great Christian hope is that there will come a day where this Jesus who has bound heaven and earth together will return his final coming, bringing heaven and earth together. There'll be no more separation, no more nights, no more treacherous seas to travel, but the dwelling place of God will be with his people. And this is the Christian hope. This is what we've been exploring together. And the wonderful news is that we've just got to keep on track because this is what Jesus has done for us. Now, last week we jumped into this and we said, well, where do we fit on this? And we saw that there were three important words. There's then, there's now, and there's later. And we needed to understood that there are things that have happened back then, there's us here now, and there's things that are come, coming later. And perhaps we understood it like this, right now, to secure hope now, we understand that the hope will come later because we trust in something that happened back then. You got that? So right now, our hope is something amazing is coming happening start again. Our hope now is that something amazing will happen later. Heaven and earth comes together. How do we make sure we're part of that? By trusting in what happened back then when Jesus overcame all these things and made it so. If we trust in what was back then, then right now we have certain hope for what will happen later. And it's at this point that it's important for us to read 2 Corinthians 
Second Thessalonians, which will become increasingly difficult to say. Have a go. Second Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Wants that Paul, God's servant, wants us to focus very hard on where we belong on this Jesus map and how we understand it. Let me read to you from Second Thessalonians, not Corinthians, chapter 2, verses 1 to 2. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, our great hope, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by a word of mouth or by a letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Paul is warning this church and he's warning us, don't be confused about where you're at in this timeline between the then, the now and the later. He says, because some people seem to be trying to unsettle this church by saying, the day of the Lord, that is the coming of the Lord, has already happened. Now you might think, who on earth is going to believe that? Who on earth thinks historically, oh yes, the final coming of Jesus has happened. But I want to tell you that this is not as crazy as it sounds if you look into it with me. So let's just remember where we are at. On the next slide, I shared with you last week that we have something called the coming of the Son of Man. This is where a humble, lowly Jesus, what I like to say, this is Jesus in Clark Kent mode, where he empties himself of glory and walks among us, dies our death. God exalts him to the highest place. That's his resurrection and ascension. That has happened. That's a very different event to the coming of the Lord. The coming of the Son of Man is where Jesus has been exalted. Humanity has been taken into the heavenly realms. And this is our hope. This is the then thing. But what has not happened, the coming of the Lord, this is where the glorious one returns, bringing new heaven new earth and the final judgment of all people and all that end time hope that we hope for now paul says to these guys it seems some people have got in and they've confused you about where you fit on this line now again this sounds crazy you think historically you're like well everybody knows that easter's already happened so we're good with that and everybody knows that the final day hasn't happened so we're okay with that historically you are theologically we're not always. Let me see if I can explain with example. Some of us are still living back then. Some of us are living with a mindset that exists almost before Jesus' resurrection, before Jesus' death. You know how I know? Because some of us continue to live with uncertainty about salvation. Some of us live in a space where we're still hoping for the best. Oh, we believe in God. We believe Jesus is his son, but we're still going, can't be quite sure if I'm saved. Can't be quite sure. This is the story of my mum. My mum went to glory in 2007. And praise God, her death came over a period from a brain tumour. And so we had lots of time to talk. But in many of our conversations, my mum, who is a God-fearing woman, a nominal Roman Catholic, uh, loved Jesus. But whenever we would talk about going to heaven, she would say, well, I hope so, as in maybe. 
my mum would say, well, Jesus has done something for us, but surely we've got to bring our part. We've got to add something to that. And we would to and fro and praise God, I praise you, Heavenly Father, that before my mum passed away, she came to understand that her one and only hope was in Jesus. She moved from then to now. She moved to a space that was post-resurrection and understood that Jesus, in overcoming death, the underworld, and all our enemies, sin and all that stuff, had given a victory. And a victory that we received just by trusting in it. And so praise God, my mum moved from then to now. She moved from a space of uncertainty and living in the, I guess, the, the theological mind in the then. She moved to the now. She moved from uncertainty to full certainty. First funeral I ever did as a young minister. They get easier from there. But one that I could do because I knew she trusted Jesus. And I live in the now with my mum, total certainty. And you can live in the now as well with total certainty if you confess Jesus as the risen Christ, just like my buddy Christian does. You know one of the other problems with living in the then? You live what Billy Graham once kind of described as a morally encumbered life. You know you're meant to do better. We all know we're meant to do better. We all know that nobody's perfect. But when you live in the then, you find yourself just feeling condemned and how will I, oh, who will rescue me from this body of death? Oh, if God finds out about what I've done, that's a problem. Billy Graham delighted in his ministry. Billy Graham was a great evangelist. He announced Jesus of helping people step into the now and say, hey, no matter what you've done, no matter what you've become, Jesus forgives you. He is risen. He is overcome and you can start again. Have certainty and assurance. Still live a moral life, but no longer encumbered by fear and condemnation. So that's how then works. Can you see how historically, probably nobody lives there, but theologically it's possible to do? If I could get just, yeah, thank you for nodding your head. That really helps me. I'm insecure like that. Some people live in the later, and I think that's the warning that Paul's giving the Thessalonians and giving us. And I'm seeing this more and more in our time. More and more in our time, folks living in the later, like we have already arrived, like perfection can be achieved like I can live a perfect life and have everything just work without a glitch and not have terrible days and everything can come together. And you know what happens when we live in the later? We live tremendously unsatisfied lives. I think we live timid lives for fear of getting it wrong. And I think we live lives where we're seeing exponential increases in depression in society today because of the crushing effect of reality upon the expectation. But isn't it all meant to work? Now you might say, well, who thinks like that? A lot of us think like that. Because once upon a time in the 1980s, someone would say, you're HIV positive. And you'd be like, oh no, I saw that ad with the Grim Reaper and now I'm, I'm gonna die. HIV is still serious today, but it's not a death sentence anymore. Isn't it amazing how medicine has advanced that some of the things that reminded us how fragile we are and could die have been overcome? Isn't it amazing how once upon a time they'd take your photo and the photo would come back from the developer, one hour development, and there you are with the red eyes and the weird face while that cousin always looks perfect in the picture, but you, you know? 
So we overcame that. We've got digital cameras. Now I'll take 10 photos of you and we can argue about which one's the best because I look good in one of them, but you don't look good in that one. And, right? There are so many ways to convince ourselves that maybe we are there. Maybe think everything is perfect. And I think as things, some things are amazing, we start to maybe fall into this trap theologically and think, <gasps> maybe we're living in the later Maybe we're living in a space where things can be perfect. Um, I speculate, but I'm seeing this. I'm seeing this amongst my kids. I'm seeing this amongst a number of their generation where they're sometimes timid to speak or to commit to anything because what if it's not the right thing? What if it's not ideal? Well, then you go, and you have another crack. But that doesn't mesh up with a mind that's expecting. We can do things perfect, right? Perfect, right? Perfect, right? No. Who should I marry? Because it's meant to be perfect, right? Perfect, right? You, you fight? Of course you fight. You two sinners come together. Double the sin. Double the work. Double the support. And so when we live in the later space, we wrestle with this perfection. And whilst those living in the then space are sometimes morally encumbered and condemned, I think sometimes when you live in the later space thinking we've arrived, you might live morally foolishly. So sometimes there's this expectation that, well, Jesus has done everything. I've arrived. Everything is good. I'll do whatever I want. What a foolish thing to say to turn your back on God's law and God's instruction, which actually helps you do life wisely. And so we become morally foolish, thinking there's no judgment to come, thinking there's no consequences of doing silly things. So we don't want to live then. We don't want to live later. We want to live now, having put our faith in what Jesus did back then in anticipation of what is to come later. So how do we live now? Well, we live now just like that, where we acknowledge with great joy, great certainty that Jesus has held us and we are alive in Christ and not height, not depth, not famine, not plague, not sword, not any can, anything can separate us from the love of God. That's our current reality bonded to him by his Holy Spirit who lives among us and in us. And 2 Thessalonians acknowledges all of that and says, and be aware of the times you're living in. Your salvation is complete. You are a saint, perfect in God's eyes if you put your trust in Jesus. Do not expect this world that you live in to be perfect. This world you need to be aware is tricksy. And so this is what uh, Second Thessalonians goes on to say. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way. For that day, that end day, will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets him up in God, himself up in God's temple, God's meeting place, proclaiming himself to be God. What the Bible does here is help to make us realise what life really is. It's trying to help us be people who can see beyond suffering because sometimes we see suffering so we wonder where God is and we feel crushed. 
It's trying to help us move beyond mundane. Sometimes we just see the mundane, we just go, well, one foot after the other and lose our anticipation of something better. It's trying to help us uh, aspire for more than affluence rather than trying to get the best the world has to offer. It says, why not set yourself up for the new world to come? Realize there is more going on here than what your eyes, ears, taste, touch might see. Sometimes the Bible has to speak in extreme ways to kind of shock us. It speaks in plain ways and extreme ways to shock us into realizing what's going on. This was the way of my father. Now, when I was a little boy, here's my other trauma story, and um, we might pass a plate around later and we'll send Shane off to counseling for all his childhood trauma or something. I don't know. We're not really doing that. Hey, YouTube, we're not really doing that. My dad had this saying. Um, when I was a little boy, I remember him talking about paying bills. Right? You've got bills to pay, you've got to go to work. But he didn't say, I've got bills to pay, I've got to go to work. He had this phrase. Well, got to go to work to keep the wolf from the door. Now, if you think the hare and the tortoise traumatized me, <laughs> here's the worst bit. Our house actually had a pretty old door. I remember when we replaced it, but it was this old kind of unpainted brown door, like timber door, and it had scratches on it. And I'm seeing this as a four-year-old, and I'm like, are you kidding me? How are, like, the police and whoever letting this wild animal roam the streets? How is my dad, he's strong, but how is he going to keep the wolf from the door? Gee, I hope after he's eaten my dad and eaten my older brother, he's not interested in me. I'm terrified. Of course, my, there was no literal wolf. But my dad was painting an image to help bring into the family this realization of bills are scary and you've got to do something to keep safety and overcome this. There's a wolf at the door. And here's where we start to approach the Bible explaining the times we live in. It has a number of ways to describe these times. I had a little brainstorm with myself, came up with a few. I call these the five H's. I call them hair, hardship, helping, horses, and who? Uh, hair. Uh, the book of Hebrews talks about in this time, amongst us, the people of faith, some will persevere, you'll keep going, and some are in danger of shrinking back. What is true faith? True faith is in the right object, the Lord Jesus. True faith produces fruit. And true faith is faith that, faith that finishes. Some faith will be exposed as not true faith because it doesn't finish. So don't hair it up. Don't shrink back. No matter what comes before you, keep pushing forward. That's the hair. Then there's the hardship. This is the Bible just being so honest about life. Our present sufferings, Romans 8, our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us in Christ Jesus. The Bible says, hey, honesty hour, it's going to get tough. It's going to be hard. We sang about it in one of the songs before. Second Timothy talks about all who want to live a godly life will be persecuted. It's going to be hard, but it's not worth comparing with what's to come. This time will also be marked by a time of helping. This is what Jesus has commissioned us to do. This is Acts chapter 1, and we learned from Matthew 24 last week that Jesus is sending witnesses, us, to the ends of the earth to tell people good news, good news, good news, good news, good news, good news. Something happened back then that secures hope now for what's happening later. So trust in Jesus. That's part of the now time. 
This is a time of horses. Famous stuff in the Bible, debated, yes, my view, that those four horsemen you always hear about, that's not for later, that's for now. Uh, If you don't see a bent on conquest, if you don't see injustice, if you don't see war, and if you don't see death in this time, I'm not sure what news you're watching. Those ponies are galloping right now. This is the Bible explained that we are in a time of the, not literal, but thousand years tribulation. This is a difficult time. Romans said it really simply, in a world that's in bondage to decay. It's a tricky period between the coming of the Lord and the coming of the Son of Man. And then comes the who, and the who is in this passage, which is the person of lawlessness and this rebellion. What's that all about? Well, let's see what we can do with that in the time we have left. First of all, too much has been done with this. There's a lot of wasted ink, a lot of trees that could have been survived to live another day on people trying to write and work out who is the man of lawlessness. This is like the wolf at the door. It's not a particular individual. It's an image to help you realise that we are in a time that is not straightforward. A dangerous time, a tricky time, but where you are held in the hope of Jesus. So let's see what we can do with a bit of a personal profile of this man of lawlessness. Great news. Uh, Many of us love to be inclusive and love gender-inclusive language. So you can translate this, the woman of lawlessness. Ladies, you're welcome. Probably best to translate the person of lawlessness. It's the anthropos of lawlessness. It's not gender specific. That's going to make it tricky to work out who they are. Is it a man or a woman? Don't ever know. Now, over the years, every time someone sees someone that's really bad, they're like, ah, maybe that's him. Maybe that's her. That's so. And they keep coming and going and coming and going because there's no one particular person but what we do know it's a it's a lawlessness see sometimes christians again think that god doesn't love the law god loves the law he just fulfilled the law in christ jesus and there's no condemnation but god hasn't said oh i don't know what i was thinking when i wrote all that stuff he's saying i was writing wisdom for you i was showing you my character so he's lawless Look for lawless activity. What sort of activity? What does this guy do? His allegiance is satanic, so he loves to deceive. His activity, 80% of the world's persecution today is still against Christians. You can do this on a large scale where people are bleeding and dying and all those things, and you can do it on a small scale where you're not sure if you're allowed to share what you think in different conversations because people will jump on you. Don't be scared. This is just what the Bible says we should expect in our time. There'll be persecution, there'll be opposition, there'll be blasphemy. Praise God for things like the Diocese of the Southern Cross. Praise God for Gafcon, because in the church today there is blasphemy. We heard a testimony of this just last week of a bishop who claims that Jesus isn't bodily resurrected. That's blasphemy. That is anti-Christ of a bishop who said God's word is no, isn't the authority over us and isn't morally imperative. That's blasphemy. And it happens in our time. There is idolatry. This is the activity of this wolf at the door. 
where we make new ultimates. God is the ultimate. And so as important as the environment is, we must not fall back into paganism where we worship the environment. We're getting a new one. That doesn't mean waste this one or treat it poorly, but it means, remember, don't worship creation like in Romans 1. Worship the Creator. We're in a space where idolatry means environmental worship, means people worship. People are wonderful and important and we love them dearly, but they come second to God. And so sometimes we will not speak God's truth because it might offend a person. I would be far more concerned about offending the God. I'm seeking Jesus, amen, before I'm seeking yours. I seek for you, under him, your repentance, not to me, but to him. I seek to be faithful to him, not in agreement with you. That is the posture of a disciple. Not people first, Jesus first. Feelings have become ultimate. Feelings are not ultimate. God is ultimate and his truth is ultimate. We've made nice the great commandments. Be nice to your neighbor. No, love your neighbor. There is a difference. Be nice if you can, but it's not the ultimate thing. Love them enough to tell the truth and to care and to walk beside in hardship and disagreement. So what is the power of this wolf at the door, this man of lawlessness? The power is simply deception. There's no actual power to make you do anything. And my friend tells a most amazing story about the power of the evil one, the devil, the man of lawlessness, whatever you want to call him. He says, I was driving in the country one time and there were sheep in the road. And I drove up to these sheep and the stupid sheep wouldn't move out of the way. And I'm a car. And they're a sheep. Why were the sheep like just paralyzed and staying with her? Because there was a sheepdog there. And the sheepdog was barking at them and telling them, you've got to be there. What the sheep didn't realize is the sheepdog was actually tied up. He couldn't nip at their heels. He couldn't do a thing. All he could do was bark. That's how the evil one works. All he can do is lie, deceive, and bark, but he is bound by Jesus. How do you bind a deceiver? With the truth. Stand firm in the truth. And don't do what Ahaz in our first reading in 2 Kings 16 did. Saw a great idea another king was doing, went, oh yeah, we'll have a bit of that, that'll work well, I'll take a bit of this and a bit of that and we'll mix it all together. He departed from God's way for him and took on the world's way and was destroyed for it. That's not what we want to do. Stand firm. The only power the person of lawlessness has, this wolf at the door, is deception. And their status? Loser. Because Jesus has already overcome. So brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let's hit the home straight here. Uh, some will not stand firm. This is what we're told in Second Thessalonians, you'll see on the screen. Some will perish. And they perish because they refuse to love the truth. And so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie. And so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth, but have delighted in wickedness. A summary of that comes from the daughter of Billy Graham, Ruth Graham, who says, God often plays the gentleman. And when people ask to be away from him, the gentleman opens the door for them, steps out of the way, and shows them their way. That's what they desired. 
sends them that powerful delusion and off they go. But that is not so with you. That's not how we want to progress. Instead, we progress to verse 13. But we always ought to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. That is the Spirit who bonds you to the Son of God, who has overcome all things through belief in the truth. He called you to share this through our gospel, that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, the hope that is later on. So what do we do with all this? We celebrate a God who has united us to the Savior through whom he was reconciling all things. We believe what was then, his resurrection, so that we might have true hope for later. And as we live now in a world that has all kinds of deceptions and different things, we hang in there and we don't move. When someone says, get with the times, you say, I'll change my pants from flares to skinny jeans, but I ain't changing my doctrine. I'm staying with the God who saved me and I'm standing firm with him until the end. And that is today's message. Stand firm. Keep on track. Don't hair it up. Let me pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you for he the third person of the Trinity who reminds us of what, we are, of what we have been taught. And so we ask, Heavenly Father, that your Holy Spirit might always minister to us, reminding us to stand firm and trust only in the resurrection, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of our Lord Jesus. That glorious work he did back then, that we might be held secure now for the glorious hope that is to come later. Keep us standing firm in this hope and help us to never deviate. In Jesus' name we pray.